And let me tell you, in human history, all change has been led by small minorities. Almost every revolution, almost every major change has been led by 5 to 10 percent of a public. That's very important to remember. So we don't need everybody. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, guest hosting here again today. So glad to be with you again. And thanks for joining us for Who Stole the American Dream? Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. In this program, you'll be hearing from Hedrick Smith, Pulitzer Prize winning former New York Times reporter and editor and author of the best-selling book, Who Stole the American Dream? Hedrick Smith has established himself over the past 50 years as one of the premier journalists in America. His book, which is also the subject of our talk, gives an incisive analysis of the past 30 years of U.S. political and economic history and sheds light on the numerous powerful forces that have made the American dream pull further and further apart for too many Americans. The conversation is facilitated by Mary Ellen Class, the State Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald, where she covers government and politics and focuses on investigative and accountability reporting. Mary Ellen is a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. So first, we'll hear a thought-provoking overview from Hedrick Smith. Then Mary Ellen comes in with some questions and moderates some other questions from the audience. I'm sure you'll appreciate it just like I did. So here's Hedrick Smith on Who Stole the American Dream. I'm going to talk tonight about the need for rebirth in civic activism. And you all represent the potential and the actuality of civic activism. And what Liz is doing and this spreading version of Village Square, bringing people together across party lines. We got partisanship up the yin-yang, right? Um, we have too much partisanship in this country, and it's not working, and we know it. And we're really wondering across America what we can do. And we're wondering how we got into the predicament that we're in. And we're worried about how important and how deep the problem is that we're facing. When I left Williams College, I was fortunate to go to Oxford. When I was at Oxford, I studied history the history written by Arnold Toynbee, the great British historian who wrote a 12-volume history of human civilization. 21 civilizations over 6,000 years. And Toynbee tried to understand what made civilizations great and survive and thrive and grow and be influential and what made them shrink and fall. And he tells the story of human civilization in terms of challenge and response. Civilizations face challenges and they either respond and meet them and survive and thrive and go on and grow or they don't meet them and they decline and disappear from history and we study them um, under glass. He starts way, way back 
He starts with the Inca civilization in Latin America and the Egyptian civilization on the Nile. What's interesting is he thought of something I never would have thought of. He said their greatest challenge initially was a hostile environment. Would they be able to generate an agricultural economy that was strong enough, rich enough, cohesive enough, and creative enough to support large numbers of people pulled together in mountain areas or in valleys? And we know they succeeded because today you can go to Machu Picchu and see not only, obviously you can't see the grain they harvested, but they were so wealthy and successful that there are temples there today thousands of years later. And you can do the same thing on the Nile with the Egyptians. But what's interesting is they were unable to cope with another kind of challenge, which is the challenge of a superior military force from an outside invader. The Ottoman Turks conquered Egypt. The Spaniards conquered Inca Peru. And so those civilizations failed. Now we as Americans take a deep breath and say, well, military challenge is something we know how to meet. We've met it successfully. World War I, but more importantly, World War II, Hitler, Pearl Harbor, the Japanese, the Axis powers. And then 50 years of Cold War, we faced off the Soviet Union, which was an ideological and economic challenge, but it was primarily a military challenge because they had missiles they could shoot from their country to ours. So we, for the first time in our history, came under threat. We dealt with that. Now, what Toynbee tells us that's really interesting and important for us today is that the two civilizations that we admire the most, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, ran into a different kind of challenge. He calls it schisms in the soul of the civilization. Schisms in the body social. Does that begin to echo? Internal divisions that led to the decline of both ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Now, I'm here to talk about America today, but really about two Americas, about a divided America. We're divided by money, we're divided by power. We're divided by other things as well, but primarily money and power. The 1% and the 99%. Uh, Wall Street and Main Street. Very different interests, very different power. And then we have the power flowing from those places uh, either into Washington, into power centers, or not. And then we have a city in Washington which feels disconnected from the rest of the country. We elect people, we send them off there, and yet they feel as though they've gone to another planet. We look at it, it doesn't work. It doesn't feel connected to the American body politic. In fact, it reminds me of that old uh, Peanuts cartoon, the one where Lucy has a card table set up in the backyard and says, Psychiatry, one cent. Charlie Brown comes up, he puts down his penny, and she says, Charlie, before I can give you advice and do a little psychiatry with you, you have to think of life as a voyage on a great ocean liner. Now, there's some people, and they take their deck chairs to the bow, and they look up to the future to see where they're going. And there are other people, they take their deck chair to the stern, and they look back to see where they've come from. Which group do you belong to? And Charlie scratched his head. He said, Lucy, I'm having trouble getting my chair unfolded. So that's our image of Washington. They're having trouble getting their chair unfolded. We laugh about it, but we're upset about it. We're deeply upset about it. And there's a feeling, there's a feeling in the country that there's not much we can do about it. Well, I don't agree. 
I spent the last 15 or 16 months traveling this country, talking in seven, 17 different states, talking to high school students, talking to college audiences, talking to seniors, talking to groups like this. And I find a lot of Americans wanting to get engaged. I find enormous frustration, enormous hunger for some chance to get involved in doing something to make this country, put this country back on the track. I was up in New Hampshire last spring, and I talked in a number of towns, and I found there were people up there passing around petitions calling for a constitutional amendment to roll back the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court allowing unlimited campaign contributions by corporations and unions. Do you know what? In the spring, 54 New Hampshire towns passed resolutions calling for that constitutional amendment. And around the country, 16 states are now on record. Now, this is grassroots response to what's happening in Washington. I was out in Seattle not too long after that, and I was talking to a, a, a group of seniors. Now, these are active seniors. These are not people in assisted living. A couple of hundred of them. And I was talking about some of the same subjects we're going to talk about tonight. We got into the question and answer period. And a gentleman about halfway back stood up and said, Mr. Smith, it's all well and good for you to talk about reform and the need for reform, but where's the leadership going to come from? Where's the new Abraham Lincoln? Where's the new Martin Luther King? And I said, well, you know, Martin Luther King actually emerged from below. And so did Abraham Lincoln. He emerged from below, attorney, representative. He didn't just suddenly become president, just suddenly deal with the Civil War. I said, it just popped in my head. I don't know why it did. I said, what's your name? He said, Ben. I said, Ben, you're it. You're the chairman of the committee in this building to organize for reform. Everybody broke out laughing, of course. And Ben was embarrassed. Do you know when I left that building an hour and a half later, Ben had a clipboard and he had nine people who had signed up onto his committee? <laughs> I'm serious, ladies and gentlemen. And you got a leader right here. Liz Joyner, she can get 200 signatures. I'm talking about reform, not just meeting and talking talking about doing something. So I believe people can do something. But there is a sense of pessimism and concern in the land. I don't care whether I go to, to, to Florida, Virginia, New Hampshire, Colorado, Nebraska, in the dead of winter. The common thread is people are seriously worried about where this country is and where it's going. People think the political system is broken. That's what they say. In one poll, 91% of the people said that money had corrupted our democracy. We no longer had a democracy. In a whole bunch of polls that I see, anywhere from 60 to 80% say corporations have too much power, too much influence in Washington. The economic system is rigged by and for the 1%. Those are wide judgments. Do you know that public confidence in our political system, in our system, not just the personalities, not just the parties, is at the lowest level in 40 years. And in one poll that I saw, 60%, and in another poll that I saw, 63% said the United States is in decline. We've seen our best days. The generations ahead are not going to enjoy what we've enjoyed, imperfect as it is. Now, that's a very serious judgment. John Gardner, founder of Common Cause, before he died, back in 2005, said this. We're walking the edge of a precipice here. Civilizations die of disenchantment. Civilizations die of disenchantment. 
If enough people lose faith in their society, the whole venture falls apart. And the question is, how do we get to this situation and what do we do about it? It's really bad. Now, the conventional explanation is that we got to this situation because of impersonal forces. What we're looking at today, the high inequality of income, the inequalities of power, this is the result of market forces, of globalization, of advancing technology. The predicament of the middle class that we see in America today is just inevitable. It's unavoidable. Suck it up. Get used to it, America. There's a certain truth to that, but that's only a half-truth, and it's a misleading half-truth because it misses the human quotient. Because when I start, that's where I started. But when I went back and I started to look at things, I began to understand that human beings had a major role in causing our problems. And if human beings had a major role in causing them, then human beings, we as people, can't fix them. So that's encouraging, even though the basic news is discouraging. What I did when I went back to take a look at what was going on in an earlier America of another era was to, to rediscover what I thought was true. And that is if you look at America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, we had an America of much greater shared prosperity than we do today. And when I first thought that, I thought, Smith, be careful. You're white-haired. People who are white-haired have a tendency to say, when I was young, everything was really hunky-dory. It's nostalgia. Listen, boy, everybody was above average when we were young, right? <laughs> the Lake Wobegon syndrome. But I went back and I looked at the numbers, and they're really interesting. From 1945 to the mid-70s, the productivity of the American workforce, which is the engine for rising living standards, rose 97%. And the median hourly pay and benefits, that is for the average worker, rose 95%. 97, 95. Dollar for dollar, the growth in the American economy, the profits of the great American corporations, the efficiency of the American economy got passed through to people in the middle. All the quintiles, top 20%, all the way down to the bottom 20%, they all moved up together. Didn't mean we had equality. Charlie Wilson, who ran General Motors, highest paid CEO in the country, made 35, 40 times as much as the average General Motors worker. But we had what economists call the great convergence. The people at the top were not that far from the people in the middle, were not that far from the people at the bottom. And at that time, we actually had bipartisan politics. Democrats and Republicans fought like hell to win the presidency, to, to win control of Congress. But once they got there and they passed legislation, they had conference committees, every year they passed a budget. They sent people to the moon. They passed Medicare and Medicaid. They passed civil rights bills. They passed voting rights bills. They did all kinds of things that helped the country. So politics and economics worked back then. So the question is, how? Why? What made it work? Two things are important. Keep an eye on all the time. Ideas and power. Now, the idea that was central to that success was an idea that the CEOs of the country had in the major corporations, and that was what we call stakeholder capitalism. That it was smart business and good economics to pay people well and give them good benefits. Henry Ford had that idea all the way a century ago in 1914. If I pay Ford workers $5 a day, which then was an enormous sum, not only will I be able to keep my workforce and motivate them, but they'll be able to buy the Ford motor Model T cars that we're producing at Ford Motors. 
And if you listen to Charlie Wilson at General Motors or Reg Jones at General Electric or Frank Abrams at Standard Oil of New Jersey in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, they said the same thing. They said it is our moral duty, it is our sacred responsibility to balance the economic interests of all the stakeholders in the corporation. And they meant, of course, the owners, but the managers, the rank-and-file employees, the communities in which companies operated, the banks that loaned the money, the suppliers that provided them parts, and the customers who bought their products. It was a notion of organic connection. It was as if the CEO was at the center of spokes of the wheel. And what that did was it generated what economists call the virtuous circle of growth. Pay tens of millions of people well. Americans don't save a lot except for buying their homes, middle-class Americans. And they go out and spend a lot of money. And it's that consumer demand that drives growth. It causes companies to expand production, build new factories, buy more equipment, hire more workers. That's the secret of America's growth over that long period. And by the way, in that period, the growth average under Republican President Dwight Eisenhower, Democratic Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, it averaged about 3% a year. And the tax rates at that time under, under, Johnson, uh, under Eisenhower were 92%. 92%. 77% under Kennedy. Today, taxes, the last decade, 35%, average growth rate, 1%. No connection between the tax rate and growth. What mattered to growth was a middle class that was doing well and spending money. That's what drives the machine. We're not short of capital today in America. We're short of consumer demand. We have low wages, low growth, low demand. The other thing that mattered in that earlier era, and this is very important to you, we had a very active middle class. We had a middle class that was engaged politically, and I don't mean just voting. I mean pushing on the issues. You all will remember in the 60s, the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King and the students demonstrating and so forth, pushing for an expansion of American democracy, letting blacks in both to the economy and to the political system. But we also had a women's movement. Women were protesting that they were making 41 cents on the, uh, on the dollar for doing the same work that men were doing. Fifty years ago, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique, there was a protest. There was a consumer movement led by Ralph Nader, wrote that book, Unsafe at Any Speed, said Detroit automakers were making cars with defects that were causing accidents that were killing people. Does that sound familiar? If you buy a product today and turn it over, look, go into a store, look at a product, and look at the label on the back to see what's in it, whether or not you want to put it in your mouth or put it on your face or feed it to your family, you can thank those people back then because they put the pressure on the government to enact those regulations, not to hurt capitalism, but to make it more transparent, to make the exchange between producers and customers more open and honest, to actually make capitalism work better. There was a labor movement where you had workers who were able to organize and bargain for good wages and good benefits. You had an environmental movement. Do you know that on Earth Day 1970, 20 million Americans got off their duffs, got off their couches, got off their beds, and went into the streets and went to college campuses and went to shopping malls. 20 million Americans, nearly one out of every 10 Americans, physically went and demonstrated, demanding that the government clean up the environment. Within one year, within one year, Congress had passed seven major pieces of environmental legislation. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, 
Safe Drinking Water Act, Anti-Toxic Substance Act, and on and on and on, and all but the Clean Air Act, which was passed over his veto, all of them were signed by Richard Nixon, a Republican pro-business president, because that was a sensible way to operate. When I asked the head of the EPA why he did it, Bill Ruckelshaus, a friend of mine, he said, Nixon was a pragmatic politician. He wasn't a greenie. People demanded action. We in the government had to respond. That's the way democracy is supposed to work. So that was the formula. Stakeholder capitalism and an activist middle class. Active citizenry. So what went wrong? What happened? How do we go from there to here? Well, we had a power reaction, a Newtonian reaction. For every action, there was an opposite, equal reaction from the other side. There was actually a revolt of the bosses. There was a, the, the corporate elite uh, began to feel as though they were not making enough profits, that they were under pressure uh, politically from all these movements that I've just ticked off. And a fellow named Lewis Powell was put on the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon in 1972. But before that, he was a famous corporate attorney. Wrote a memo, which he gave to his friends at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he said, American free enterprise is under mortal threat from all these groups, and he specifically mentions Nader and the women's movement, the environmental movement, civil rights movement, and the labor movement, of course. We've got to do something about it. We have to rally. We have to seek the high ground. We have to identify our enemies. We in business, we have to organize politically, pool our resources, and take the high ground. And believe it or not, that's exactly what happened. He was a Paul Revere for a rebellion or a revolt of the bosses. When he wrote, there was no business roundtable. It's now the most powerful lobby of business in Washington. And it was formed within three months of Powell's letter being circulated by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to business leaders around the country. When Powell wrote, believe it or not, there were only 175 companies that even had offices in Washington. Eight years later, there were 2,425. This is the late 70s before Reagan gets into office. There were 9,000 registered corporate lobbies. There were 50,000 people working for corporate and, and trade associations. There was an army, and they went to work. And what was fascinating to me and exciting to discover, but a little embarrassing, because uh, I was bureau chief for the New York Times in Washington in the late 70s, and I'd seen the symptoms of this, but I didn't understand what was going on, and none of my reporters did, and no one else in the press did. What happened was Powell's army went to work, and it blocked the legislation that labor and consumer reformers wanted to have, and then it enacted the Congress of 1978, the most pivotal Congress of the last 50 years, enacted the 401k plan, which shifted the cost of retirement, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, from the corporate books to the pocketbooks and checkbooks of individual citizens. It, it enacted a change in the corporate bankruptcy law to the great advantage of management, the great disadvantage of trade unions and average workers. Uh, it began to deregulate industries. It changed the interest laws in ways that set up the housing collapse, uh, boom and collapse that we had in the 1990s and the 2000s. It all happened in the late 70s. And then the political litmus test in any government is what happens to taxes. That tells you who's winning and losing, and it tells you how the political lineup is set up. Carter wanted to raise taxes on corporations by 2% to help balance the budget. When that bill came back from Congress, the corporate tax rate was lowered by 2%. And the investment tax rate, which is what we call, the, which is, we call it the capital gains tax rate, had the biggest cut in the last 50 years. It was dropped from 48% to 28%. That Congress of 1978, 79, 80, was a game changer. The landscape of power in America changed, 
and it has been the same ever since. It's accumulated over time, and the policies enacted over time have kept and reinforced what got started under Carter. went much further, much faster under Reagan, and again under George W. Bush, and it went a little bit the other way under Clinton. But fundamentally, the trend was sent back there. So the one thing that happened was power shifted. The second thing that happened was the idea changed. We went from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. A guy named Milton Friedman, a famous economist at the University of Chicago, won a Nobel Prize for his great economic writing, said in a book called Capitalism and Freedom in 1961, the job of the CEO, the mission of the CEO, is not to take care of all the stakeholders. It's to serve the shareholders, to deliver maximum return to shareholders. That and that alone. And that idea took a while to take root. But business schools began to teach that. Harvard, Horton School in Pennsylvania, don't know what happened down here in Florida, but Stanford, Yale, so forth. That became the dogma. And by the 1980s, that was what was ruling in the, in the, um, in the corner office in most corporations. And what happened was, as you watch the productivity of the American workforce grow from 1975 onward, you don't see it matched by a growth in the average hourly wage. Before I told you, 97% growth in productivity, 95% in wages. In the next 30 years, 80% growth in productivity, 10% growth in wages and benefits. The link between the growth of the economy and the living standards of the middle class had been broken. Listen to this number. From 1979 to 2011, the top 1%, top 1% of income earners in the country got 84% of all the growth of the nation's entire income. 1%. I used to think when I heard the slogan from Occupy, 99%, 1%, it's a nice idea, it's a clever slogan, but it won't stand up statistically. Look at it. 1% got 84%, 99% got 16%. The top 1% got five times as much as everybody else in the country. So it is rooted in statistics. It isn't just a clever bumper sticker slogan. And one of the reasons that happened is that thinking within the corporations and the behavior in the corporations changed radically. There was an article in Harvard Business Review just last month. What's interesting is this stuff keeps getting more and more evidence backing up this understanding. In the Harvard Business Review, there was a report that back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, that American corporate leaders basically split their profits between shareholders and all the other things corporations want to do. 53% for shareholders, 47% for expanding the company, moving into new sectors, new R&D to develop new products, worker training to, to get up with new technologies, and increasing worker pay. In the last decade, this same article reports for, uh, the S&P 500 companies now devote 91% of their profits to shareholders, either in dividends or in stock buybacks, and only 9% to reinvestment in their own growth. If you want to know two reasons why the economy is not growing better, one of them is big business in America is no longer investing in its own growth to the same degree that it was in America's heyday. And the second reason is when you do this, you've got low wages. Low wages means low demand, and it means low growth. And there are lots of economic studies about America and American history and about other countries that now document that high inequality of income 
is a drag on growth. It generates low growth. If you want to have faster, long-term growth in a country, you want less extremes of income, and you want good, solid earnings from the middle class. It's not just a slogan. There are numbers there to back it up. So this is what's changed. And that money now you see, particularly in Florida now, a lot of that money flowing into American politics. In the wake of the Citizens United decision, the amount of dark money, money that we cannot trace anymore, money where the donors no longer have to identify themselves to the Federal Election Commission or the government or anybody, the media, the public, whatever. Before the Citizens United decision, the amount of dark money by independent groups in 2009 was $683,000. In the next election cycle, immediately following that decision, the amount of dark money jumped to $774 million. It grew by more a thousand percent. And in this election cycle, it's going up even higher. So what are we going to do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? I think there is. I think part of what we have to do is think about restoring the middle in America, the middle in American politics and the middle class in the American economy. And that means in the economy getting the virtuous circle going again. I think we need an American competitiveness strategy. Rebuild the muscle of manufacturing in America. Rebuild America's infrastructure. Our highway system is 50 years old. I can tell you, I've been to China. Chinese ports are much more modern than ours are. One reason is they were built later. Ours were built a long time ago. They actually have much more modern, more digitized equipment, more fancy cranes, more containers than we do. Our airports are no longer as modern as others in the world. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates we've lost a trillion dollars of growth in this country. A trillion dollars because our national transportation system is so backward. So we need to invest in America. And people say, well, how can we do that? Smart businesses, smart families invest for the future over the long run. And we have an example in the world that shows this strategy works, Germany. Germany took a different fork in the road back in the 70s from us. We went from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. They stuck with stakeholder capitalism. And they also stuck with private-public partnerships. Germany, in the last 25 years, the great German corporations, Siemens and Daimler-Benz and Airbus and so forth, have raised the pay of middle-class workers five times faster than American companies have. Now, American companies have told us they can't do that and compete on the world stage, right? Germany's done it. And guess what? Last month, Germany became the export champion of the world. They passed China. Germany now exports more than China does. Now, if it's globalization and technology, Germany's living in the same world we're living in. But they're coming out differently from us because they're pursuing a different economic strategy. It's a smart strategy. We've been told we can't have manufacturing. We've got to move to, to, to service economy. Manufacturing doesn't go on the same way agriculture was. We have 9% of our workforce today in manufacturing. Just 12 years ago, 15 years ago, it was 19%. 19 down to 9. Best jobs for the middle class and for multiplying those jobs in lots of other fields. For engineers and designers and advertisers and marketers and executives and car dealerships and home uh, sellers and home builders. I mean, it has a multiplier effect. Germany has 21% of its workforce in manufacturing. We're at 9%. So they pay more, they have more people in manufacturing, and they're exporting, and we're the world import champion. 
So there's something wrong with our strategy. So we've got to adopt a strategy that moves in a different way. We need to level a playing field with corporate taxes. We're penalizing companies that operate inside America. We need to lower the tax rate so companies working inside America have an incentive to hire more people and then close the loopholes that encourage companies to move jobs overseas because they pay lower taxes overseas. Okay? We need to invest in our youth. We need to make college more affordable for more of our kids. There are seed corn. There are growth. There are competitiveness in the decades ahead. There are reports out that show that 30,000 of the brightest high school kids in the country mostly in inner cities, are not even applying to college because they think it's beyond them financially and their families. Don't even imagine it's somewhere on their horizon. So the things we need to do economically, and there are lots more, but we're going to have to fix the political system to get there. With the political system we have today, the personalities are only going to make a marginal difference, particularly in Washington. The problem is systemic. We have to fix the system. There's too much money buying too much influence, locking up the government in Washington. We've got to control that money. We've got to get the dark money out in the open so we can see it. We need to empower average voters, and that may mean some kind of matching funds for small donors so candidates start to pay more attention to small donors. We need to do things like that, make the system work better, open it up, restore democracy. And one of the most important things we have to do is to change the political monopolies that now reign in America. What do I mean? Gerrymandered districts. Have you noticed the media is not covering the House race very much? Well, in your situation right here, it is, because you have a competitive district. Do you know you have one of about 45 competitive districts in the country? 90 percent, 85 to 90 percent of the districts in the country have been set up as monopolies by both parties. Democrats do it in Massachusetts and Connecticut and in Illinois and Maryland. Republicans do it, uh, I think, right here in Florida, but certainly they do it in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. It's crazy. The whole idea of setting up the House of Representatives in the, eye, in the eyes of the founders was to have an election every two years so voters could express themselves and tell the government whether they liked the way it was going or not. Safe districts, gerrymandered districts, absolutely prevent that from happening. Why is the House insulated and the Senate not? Because you can't gerrymander Senate districts. That's the reason we're covering Senate races and not covering House races, with a few exceptions, okay? So we need to fix those things. And then people say, well, that sounds great, Mr. Smith. Back to Ben's question. Who's going to be the leader? How are we going to do this? It's reasonable for people to be skeptical. But let me tell you, people power works. Start with the American Revolution. That was people power. Think of the progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt busting the trusts. Women got the vote. They got it by public pressure back in that era a century ago. We got direct election of senators. We didn't even elect senators, legislators. Do you know that? A century ago. That all came through public pressure. And then the civil rights movement, the women movement, all those movements I've been talking about. So there are three or four different eras in American history where we have exercised power and the government has been responsive to us. But let me tell you something. I've seen it up close. I covered the civil rights movement for the, for the New York Times. In 1960, I met John Lewis as a student in Nashville. In 1961, I met Martin Luther King. And I saw Martin Luther King not as the guy who delivered that famous speech in front of Lincoln's memorial, I Have a Dream. Great speech. One of the most moving, meaningful days of my life. To see 200,000 people peacefully demonstrating for us to open up our democracy further. 
But King was important not just because he talked the talk, but he walked the walk. I saw Martin Luther King put on his coveralls and go out and demonstrate. I first met him when he was sitting on the ground in front of the city hall in Albany, Georgia, and he got arrested. And he got arrested again in Birmingham. He walked the walk. He was nonviolent, but he got accused of being an outside agitator. People said, you're an outside agitator, which is sort of in the South almost like saying you're a revolutionary. And Martin Luther King was really wise. I didn't quite get it at the time. but was very smart. He said, yes, I am an agitator. I'm agitating. Think of your washing machine. In the center of your washing machine, there's an agitator. And he's sitting there stirring up the water and stirring up the soap to knock the dirt out of your clothes. And he said, I'm an agitator agitating to knock the dirt out of our society. Jim Crow, segregation, discrimination, racism. Well, my contention tonight, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a new generation of agitators. And I don't mean just the young. I mean all of us together. It's our turn now. If we want American democracy back, if we want to reclaim the American dream, we have to change our sentence. We can no longer say they've got to do it, meaning Washington. They're not going to do it. The politicians aren't going to do it. We've got to do it. It's our turn. It's up to us to take action now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Hedrick. I want to introduce our facilitator for this evening's conversation, Mary Ellen Class. She is the Miami Herald Bureau, Tallahassee Bureau Chief and the co-bureau chief of the Tampa Bay Times Miami Herald Tallahassee Bureau. She's a graduate of Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Before she became bureau chief for the Herald in 2004, Mary Ellen was the Tallahassee bureau chief for Florida Trend Magazine, also served as a senior writer and bureau chief for the Palm Beach Post. Many of you also may know that she's married to another powerhouse journalist, John Kennedy, who's here this evening as well. We are thrilled to have you, Mary Ellen. Great to be here. Well, this, uh, your, your um, description of where we are, I think, couldn't come at a more important time because we have a governor's race in Florida that I think most of us could safely say we don't know which direction it's going to go. Um, and so the future of Florida is, is uncertain as you make the future of, of the United States. And I wondered, when you wrote your book in, in 2012, and... Um, I wonder if you could kind of fast forward a little bit, and if you were to write an epilogue, what might it say? Because back when you wrote it, we were still in the throes of the Great Recession. Um, Florida has, you know, recovered a lot. Um, most of the nation has. But what have we learned? What did we miss? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the trends that I reported are still at work. Because even though the economy has grown and we've created 10.5 million jobs in America, inequality has also grown. If you look at the numbers uh, over the last decade, which includes the, the, the downturn and the recovery, 90% of American families are worse off than they were in 1999. 
10% of American families are about even or a little bit above, 1% or 2% up. 1% of American families are up about 25%. So the fundamental problem that's structural in our economy hasn't changed. So that's why I'm talking about the kind of growth strategy I was talking about. We need not just jobs, we need good jobs. And good jobs means really investing uh, in advanced manufacturing. I'm not talking about going back to the old manufacturing. I'm talking about using all the digital technology that we can and moving into arenas that are smart. And, and the Germans and some Scandinavians and others are already doing it. The Japanese and the Chinese are investing very heavily uh, and with public-private partnerships to make sure that happens. So I think, I mean, I'm trying to encompass that experience in what I was saying at the end of my talk. The second thing I think that's happened is the, the frustration that Americans are feeling today about the political system and the economic system is starting to emerge, but it's emerging at the state level. I think we're at a stage in American history where Washington is not going to lead. Washington is stuck, and the states are going to be ahead. Uh, and some of them are going to experiment with some things that the programs that will help small business uh, in certain areas. Some of them are going to push for a higher minimum wage as Seattle and, and a lot of the West Coast cities, San Jose, San Francisco, uh, um, Los Angeles and so forth. I mean, the state of California is moving to a $10 minimum wage. The town of SeaTac around the airport in, in Seattle, Washington and Seattle itself have moved to a $15 minimum wage. And by the way, they're doing this not just because they think it's fair. They actually think it's we're back to stakeholder capitalism. They think it's smart economics. If you raise the wages of people working at the bottom of the economy, they're going to have more spending money. And, yes, there are going to be some businesses that are going to fail, and there are going to be some jobs that are going to lose. But net-net, it's going to drive more money into the economy, and the economy in that region, in that city, in that state is going to grow. And there is evidence from around the country. There's some very interesting studies done about cities that straddle the border between Illinois and Indiana, and there's a lower minimum wage in Indiana and a higher minimum wage in Illinois, and the Illinois half of the city is actually doing better economically than the Indiana half of the city with a lower minimum wage. There's starting to be a rethinking about some of the economic orthodoxy that we've had. That's the first thing I would say, so I'm encouraged by that. The second thing I'd say is that is there is this political activism that's starting at the grassroots. I mentioned these 54 towns in New Hampshire. Uh, I was astonished Colorado is a purple state. Uh, it often elects a very conservative senator, a Republican, and, and a moderate Democrat uh, at the same time. So you would expect it to be a rather cautious state. Uh, in, Colorado, in Colorado back in 2012, they managed to put on a ballot a call for a constitutional amendment to roll back Citizens United. 73% of the people in Colorado right across the political spectrum Republicans, independents, and Democrats, almost equally, according to exit polls, voted in favor of this. So where the public is and where the office holders are is very different. And this is one of the reasons why I think something's going to have to be coming from below. And that is happening. Uh, in Illinois, there's a push for gerrymander reform. You had a gerrymander amendment to your constitution here in Florida back in 2010. Was it good enough? Was it strong enough? Open to question. There are court suits coming out of it. But the point is there's ferment about that. That's going on in the state of Virginia. It's going on in the state of New Hampshire as well. So I think there, there is ferment. People are starting to tackle some of these issues, some of these problems at the state level because they've given up on Washington. Twenty-five states have public financing of elections of one kind or another. 
25 states have minimum wage laws that are higher than Washington's minimum wage law. Almost 60% of the American workforce is now under minimum wage laws that are higher than the federal level. In other words, people are passing. I'm just picking issues. I'm not necessarily judging is this good or bad. I'm saying the initiative is passing to states and to cities. And this happened before in American history. We saw this in the 1890s and the early 1900s. We saw it in the 1920s and the 1930s. We may be into another era like that. And so I'm excited to talk to a group like this because people like you can have a direct impact on the state of Florida here. Stop worrying about Washington. Washington's going to change later. You know, you mentioned that we've, we've heard the rhetoric about we've got a recovery and things are going better. Um, and then you say that um, the growth, wages and growth, you know, high wages do not mean low growth. Um, and I want you to explain, uh, and same with high taxes don't necessarily equate to uh, low growth. Because what we hear, and certainly John Boehner will say that, Florida's legislative leaders say that you can't raise wages without costing jobs. You can't raise taxes without killing growth. Now, Florida is already a low-tax state. We're known for a low minimal business regulation. And our economy is coming, coming back. So aren't they Right. Well, I'd be interested. I hadn't thought about it this way, but those are good questions. Um, if you're a low-tax state, which you obviously are, I have people who live in the same building I live in uh, in Washington, and they spend 181 days, or what is it, 183 days a year in Florida to make sure they don't have to pay D.C. taxes, right? Well, if you got all that going on here, then how come there's not more industry moving here? So there are other things at work. There's other things about the economic environment. You've got great educational institutions here, the University of Florida, FSU. Uh, you've got three or four of them in the city. The people who decided where they were going to build the computer chip factories decided to go to Texas because the University of Texas has the finest, some of the finest engineering, particularly EE electrical engineering schools in the country. And so they moved there because of the quality of the education. Now, Texas is a relatively low-tax state. The, the North Carolina is a little bit higher-tax state. Uh, the North Carolina Research Triangle has been a magnet. Boston Route 128 is a high-tax state, and that's a magnet for that kind of industry. Uh, California is a high-tax state, and Silicon Valley is there. So I think when you start to look around, you start to say... You know, something else is going on here besides taxes. And taxes tend to dominate the discussion for two reasons. Number one, uh, we're all worried about our personal taxes. And number two, we almost all reason how we think we would behave. But if you start to talk to business leaders about how they make decisions about where they're going to locate plants, some of it is taxes, but some of it is also the quality of education, the quality of the workforce, uh, the quality of the environment, whether or not their competitors are there. The pharmaceutical industry is heavily invested in New Jersey, which is another high-tax state. So, uh, you know, and Detroit, obviously, the auto industry started in Michigan, and so it's not just going to pick up lock, stock, and barrel. And if you look at BMW and Mercedes-Benz, they've come into South Carolina, they've come into Alabama. But they need to have an educated workforce. Uh, Boeing is still keeping a lot of its aircraft production in Washington state. So I think there are other factors at work. Now, the question is, aren't they right about the taxes? 
Well, we're reasoning again from our personal experience. If I didn't have to pay so many taxes, I'd have more money and I could do something with it. Now, maybe I would spend the money on growing uh, my company. But the numbers I just gave you from the Harvard Business Review, the companies are spending 91% of their money and giving it to their shareholders, and only 9% is going to growth, says to me that what people are saying publicly is not what they're doing privately. So I think we should have our hands on our wallets when people say to us, you know, got to lower taxes because I'm going to generate jobs for you. I'm at the show me mood. Let me just give you a specific example. American corporations today have roughly $1.7 trillion in accumulated profits overseas. Okay? They're sitting over there. They've made them from plants and stuff they're selling overseas. They want to bring them back. And the argument is if we bring them back, they don't pay any taxes on those profits as long as they're overseas. They only pay taxes when they bring them back to America. And what they're doing is they're, look, they're lobbying for what is called a tax holiday. Well, the last time we had this was in 2005, and then it was only a trillion dollars. And we're talking uh, Goldman Sachs, we're talking Pfizer, we're talking General Electric, we're talking Microsoft, we're talking all across the board. They said, let us bring our profits back and we'll invest and create jobs in America. And they lobbied Congress, and the corporate tax rate, as you may know, is 35%. And what they got was a special deal, 5.5% taxes on that trillion dollars. And the government said, okay, you can do it. Invested in jobs. And they said, we're invested in jobs. Five years later, some economists from the Organization for Economic Development in Washington, which is a conservative, corporate-oriented think tank, went back and looked. And they found that 92% of the money, interesting figure, went to pay of corporate executives and dividends and share for the shareholders, and 8% went for jobs. So now people are saying, we're not giving you another tax holiday unless you put the money in something. Now, here's my idea. What if we make a deal with them? We need to spend about $5 trillion to modernize our transportation network nationwide. Why don't we say to them, invest your $1.7 trillion in our transportation network, and we'll let you make money out of it? Because a lot of those transportation projects will actually make money. But you got to put it in something that will help America as well as your company. So we, I, my, my answer is we got to get smart about the kind of bargains we strike for the health of our economy. Otherwise, those 60% of the people in America who say America's in decline are going to be right. And we don't want, I don't want that to happen. I believe in this country. I like this country. I want it to work. I want American capitalism to work. I'm not against it. I just want it to work more fairly and more effectively. Mr. Smith, would you tell us about Washington State's experiment with uh, overcoming gerrymandering, and would you tell us about your website? Oh, <laughs> this is a gentleman I talked to outside, so this is a, I didn't plant the question, but we had a conversation. <laughs> uh, but the question's a good one. How do we rebuild the middle in the American political system? It's a tough issue. One thing to do is to start eliminating safe districts. We're not going to eliminate them all. But if we can go from 10% competitive districts to 30%, it will be a major improvement. 
So what has happened in a number of states, and believe it or not, one of them is Arizona, and one of them is Iowa, and one of them is California. They have said we're not going to let the political parties, we're not going to let the legislature and the governor decide where the lines of the districts go, either for the legislature or for Congress. We're going to have a citizens commission, which will be more neutral. Now, we all know nobody is perfectly neutral, okay? So you try to pick three of these and three of those and a couple in the middle, put the independents and Republicans and Democrats together in some kind of fair fashion, but it'll be better than what's going on right now. Well, in California, they did that, and in this last election, they had many more competitive legislative races for the state assembly than they had had in a decade. It was remarkable. And they had more candidates who were running sort of closer to the center, less extreme Because if you were going to win in a competitive district, you had to appeal to voters across the board. In Washington, they went a step further than that. They said, let's have everybody run in the same primary. They did this back in 2008. All the candidates run in the same primary. All the voters vote in the same primary. You say, why does that matter? Well, because when you had safe districts, anybody was an independent. First of all, there was a Democratic primary, Republican primary. You couldn't vote. And by the time you got to the general election, the primary candidate winner was going to be the winner in a safe district, so your vote didn't count. So all of a sudden, what happened was when they put everybody in the same pool, believe it or not, the turnout in all nine Washington state congressional districts went up an average of 20%. 20% more voters suddenly said, my God, my vote is going to count. I'm going to go vote. The second thing that happened was that the party breakdown of the congressional delegation from Washington did not change. Five Democrats, four Republicans. But the kinds of Democrats and the kinds of Republicans who got elected were different. With a couple of exceptions, long-time incumbents who are very difficult to knock off. But all the rest of them, they moved towards the center. And today, none of the representatives of the state of Washington are in the outside 20% extreme of either party. They're all somewhere in near midfield, to use a political term. That's where we want them. That's how you get something done. Uh, I don't mean we don't want any extreme views, but we want more people in midfield at the moment. we got two teams at the goalposts shouting at each other. They can't even get in the game. So we need to get midfield populated again. So that's part of what happened. Now, this gentleman's question about the website. You've asked me and other people have asked me, what do we do? How do we start? Where do we go? I get those questions so many times and I try to answer them. I'm talking to one audience of 200 people. I got to talk to more people. So I'm trying to create a website which will tell you what is going on in America on gerrymander reform, on public financing of elections, on a constitutional amendment to roll back Citizens United, uh, on voters' rights, on minimum wage, on helping small business, on corporate taxes, state by state across the country, the history of the issue, where the issue stands today, what's going on, what's the track record, and if you're interested in doing something, here are groups and organizations you can get in touch with. I don't, I'm not interested in running for office. I'm not interested in running a mass organization, but I am interested in hooking up people like yourselves with those who are engaged in that and can intelligently help you. And what I found on the, web, on the web is that almost all the reform sites are highly specialized. You have to know where you're going. You, don't, you need a gateway. You need somebody saying, hey, here's the highway, here's the superhighway, here's a map, here's where you can go. And that's what I'm trying to create right now. That's what I'm doing with a, with a bunch of researchers. And I hope, I hope by early December we'll have at least a half a dozen issues up on the web and then we'll keep adding to that. Hi, my name is Rick Weinstein, and I'm really pleased to have you here. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your point of view. Uh, 
November 2012, Infographics um, posted a video on the distribution of wealth in America, highlighting both the inequality and the difference between our perception of inequality and the actual numbers. The reality is often not what we think it is. Do you agree? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that specific study, but there are a bunch of studies that have been done. When most Americans are asked how unequal our income is and how it looks, they pretty much describe what actually is going on in Sweden, which is a lot less unequal than America is. Most Americans don't have any idea how unequal it is. If you ask average Americans what an average CEO's salary is, the, I think the figures I've seen are somewhere between 500 and 600,000. For the Fortune 500, it's around 12 million. Okay, so they're way off. They're off by a factor of, I don't know, what is that, 24. Um, so, yes, we, we have a, and that's one of the reasons why when I talk, I try to give you not a lot of numbers, but I try to give you numbers that are really indicative of what's going on. I mean, that 84%. Was, is, to me, it was a bell ringer. And, and, the, and the difference between the rise in productivity and the rise in median wages, I think that's very indicative. Those things really tell you some fundamental things. Yes, we don't have a very good picture of how our own country is. Part of the problem is, is that if you ask almost any American, or at least if you did up until four or five years ago, what class they belonged to, about 97% of Americans would say they were middle class. So we had people who were making $30,000 a year and people who were making $400,000 a year both saying they were middle class. And that's not true. If you're making $400,000 a year in America today, you're in the top 1%. If you're making $30,000 a year, you're in the bottom 30%. Okay? But when you go from 40000 to 110000 you've got about 70% of Americans. That's where the American middle class is. So getting some accurate picture of that out. Part of our problem to me is that our public dialogue is so devoid of information. It's very hard to have people talking about what reality is. And, and these statistics are not absolutely perfect. People will argue about them. Economists will argue about them. But we can try to get a better picture of what's going on. And then we can start to make some intelligent decisions as a people about where to go. So your question is a really important one. Thank you. The, the, um, in the last two weeks, I think the Fed chairman, Janet Yellen, actually gave a speech talking about inequality. And um, what struck me is she said that inequality is rising even and the gap, even though we've had a recovery, the gap has widened. Now, this is even after we've had the stimulus, we had the corporate bailouts, we had you know, all the, the increase in our debt so that we can have this recovery. What did we miss as we were trying to repair the economy that left us with this widening problem? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because we went from stakeholder to shareholder capitalism. Most of the people who lost jobs in the downturn have gotten jobs that are paying them less than the jobs they lost. So they're actually worse off. And part of our problem is when we look at economics, we're looking at aggregates. How many jobs do we have? What's GDP? What's the growth rate? We have to disaggregate that and say what's happened to the median, the average person, the average family. What's happening to the bottom 50 percent? What's happened to the top 50 percent? What's happened to the top 10 percent? What's happened to the – and then you start to see that this gap is widening. But you're absolutely right. And it's going to go, by the way, it's going to go right on. 
I mean, there, I don't know if you all have, have read about it, heard about it. There's a book called Capital in the 21st Century written by a French economist named Thomas Piketty. And he and others have done uh, studies of, of, of the American. They, they study American income tax returns in order to find out what people actually make, not what, what is sort of declared and what people talk about, but what they actually report to the feds. Now, it may not be perfect, but those are very, very good numbers. And the argument is, and the analysis is, that so long as money makes more money faster than the economy is growing, that is, if the return on capital investment, Wall Street, is 5%, but the national growth rate is 3%, because so much money is concentrated in the hands of the top 1%, 2 3 4%, the gap is going to keep growing wider. And that is what's going on. I mean, if you look at something like the capital gains tax, you say, and the argument is, you know, more and more people have 401ks, more and more people have mutual funds and so forth. And so that should be helping everybody when you bring down the capital gains tax rate. And it's true technically. But 50% of the capital gains in America every year are realized by the top 1%. And 25% more of the capital gains are realized by the second, third, and fourth percent. So overwhelmingly, capital gains are benefiting people at the top. And so that's continuing. I mean, Warren Buffett has said it. Warren Buffett has said, this guy who runs Berkshire Hathaway, is one of the richest people in America, is a multi-multi-billionaire, probably the most successful long-term investor we have in America, and a big friend of Bill Gates. And he says, it's crazy. I am paying a lower tax rate than my secretary. She's making $40,000 a year, and I'm making $40 million a year. And the reason is she's paying it on work. The tax rate on work is higher than the tax rate on money. As long as that goes on, it's going to keep accentuating this. So we have to start thinking about public policies that are actually going to make the economy work better for everybody, even the wealthy, over the long run. Hello. Thank you. Um, I can't tell you how riveting your presentation and your comments have been. I look around this room, and I see that the majority of people in this room are of the era where we believed in um, grassroots collective organizing and creating some change. What I worry about is the generation of individuals who are now the millennial generation, the me generation, the people that are coming out of high schools and colleges, and they're the individuals that need to be enlightened to make our democracy grow stronger. Do you have any thoughts on how that can happen? First of all, let me thank you for your comment. And let me thank you as an audience. I look around when I speak at audiences, and you're extraordinarily attentive and you're extraordinarily engaged. And for me, as somebody trying to share what I've learned to you, that's a very rewarding experience. And I want to thank you for the attention and respect you've given me. I'm sure there are lots of things I've said that lots of you disagree with, but at least I think we're engaged in a thoughtful, productive, creative conversation. A lot of people ask the question you've just asked almost everywhere I go, particularly when the audience looks about like this, okay? And I have to say that I've had the same question myself. I've now spoken on 40 campuses, 
And I can tell you that on those 40 campuses, I have been surprised at how many young people are actually thoughtful and engaged, okay? Now, are they the majority? Are they going to go do something? The answer is no, they're not the majority. But let me tell you, even in our generation, it's not the majority. And let me tell you, in human history, all change has been led by small minorities. Almost every revolution, almost every major change has been led by 5 to 10 percent of a public. That's very important to remember. So we don't need everybody. That's the first thing. Let me just share with you an experience. I, I was asked to speak in New Hampshire. I was going around speaking in a number of New Hampshire towns, and somebody said, would you go, talk, would you go lead a, a, a student assembly at Nashua Public High School? I said, absolutely not. They said, why not? I said, my recollection of student assemblies when I was in high school was that the boys were pulling the girls' hair and, and flying around paper airplanes and throwing spitballs and paying no attention because the faculty was sitting up on the stage and we were all down here. I don't want to be part of that kind of a dialogue. So they came back to me and they said, okay, would you come talk to our American history class, 60 kids? I said, I will talk to them. I don't like sitting where I am right now. I will talk to them if I can stand on the same level that they're sitting on. And actually, I sat on the stage so my head wasn't much higher than theirs. I think it's very important not to talk down, physically down to young people, okay? And I was interested. When I got up that morning, I thought, how the hell am I going to say to these kids? What do they know? How much are they engaged? So I invented a quiz. Seven true and false questions, three or four multiple choice questions. And I had the teachers pass out the quiz. And they were about the kinds of subjects I've been talking about today. Well, number one, these kids did much better on the test than I thought they would do. And when I did the questions with them, I didn't just give the questions. I got into a dialogue with them. They were engaged. The questions they asked me were really smart. They were really good questions. We talked like that for an hour and a half. And when the class was over, I would say about 20 of those kids came rushing up to the front of the class because they wanted to keep talking. I mean, it was moving. I've had that. I was at the University of Nevada, Reno. Is that a place you think of as being a high academic institution? <laughs> Wasn't. I went there because they got a good journalism school, and I was talking. I, I gave a lecture there, and the same thing happened at the end of that lecture. There was a whole crowd of people, and the, unfortunately, the university had a schedule for me, and I had to move on. They had to break up the conversation I was having with these kids afterwards. I think there are many more people in that younger generation already, and I think one of the critical things that could happen is people from our generation sharing our direct experience with what people power can do, what civic action can do, with a generation that thinks civic action is sending a tweet, Okay. And they're going to keep sending tweets, but there is a way to get them engaged. And we've got to figure out how to do it. An organization like this, I mean, where's the youth village square? I mean, Liz Joyner can do anything. Actually, we seem seem to have one of them right here who would like to say something. (laughs) Terrific. See, here we go. Hi, everyone. Um, And thank you, Mr. Smith, uh, for speaking. I just wanted to say in response to the question uh, that the lady asked that there are people in my generation organizing. We're going to do it, um, and we're getting there. Um, the reason why I think we're not is that, just speaking from, uh, from that generational vantage point, the world seems pretty bleak and pretty hopeless right now, and that really encourages you to sort of look and just think about the next day rather than long term. 
But in terms of y'all helping us, if y'all could be there to support us as we organize ourselves, not just when we're taking action, uh, but for people who are wondering, like, how can I still organize while I'm getting my education? What do I do after that? The more you help us, the more encouraged young people are going to be to act. So check your newspapers. <laughs> um, that, that's great. That, what he said is absolutely great. I mean, there is a feeling uh, on a lot of people's part that life looks pretty bleak. In fact, one of the most profound statements made to me while I was doing the research on this book uh, was made to me by a guy named Ernie Cortez in Texas, a great organizer of, of uh, Latinos in Texas. And he said to me, you know, the old saying is power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He said, Rick, powerlessness also corrupts. That sense that we are powerless is actually what's killing our democracy today. The fact that we think we can't do something causes us not to do it. Well, the young people feel the same thing. So what about people who have families? Your age and mine, I'm all the way to grandchildren. So what if we have family discussions where the middle generation, our kids and our grandchildren, and we talk about this, that Thanksgiving and Christmas isn't just about um, you know, having a good time and a big turkey and so forth. But whatever time we get together, we are talking about issues like this. And, you know, I don't mean we have a public seminar you know, at home, okay? But, but at least it's willing to – what's going on? Why not ask them the same question? Is anything going on? Do people care? What do people think in your generation? I will bet you get more f- interesting feedback than you think you would. I've gotten it. I've learned. That's not where I started. And it's great to learn that, that young people like that want to be engaged. You guys must be exhausted. They must want to quit. Well, the, um, the, the, one thing, the one thing I did want to get you to circle back on is that you t- you, the title of your book was Who Stole the American Dream? I mean, that, that's pretty accusatory. That's, somebody intentionally did that, right? And, and you seem to be blaming corporate America for doing that. Um, when I grew up, my dad had a, a story he used to tell us, and that was that he caught his younger brother shoplifting from the corner store or some candy. And he said, you, got, you can't keep that. You've got to return it. But you, got to, you, can, you can steal it back. They don't have to know you're returning it. Um, so it, it seems to me that corporate America has to be a part of this as well. They, if they're going to give back some of what they've stolen from us, they, they can't be the victim, right? They can't be out there. They, they've got to be one of the stakeholders. How do we get them on board to be willing to give up some of that to, to help us steal it back? You know, that's a really profound question. That's a great question. Yeah, you ask really good questions, Mary Ellen, and, and that's why you're a good journalist. Um, um, that's not easy. I, I, think, I think part of it is we start to have dialogues like this. I mentioned to you that I've, I was asked by the conference board to have this interview with Klaus. People at the conference board were concerned about stakeholder versus shareholder. That's why they had the meeting. I mentioned to you that at Brookings Institution, there was a roundtable that I went to where there, the whole purpose was how do we get corporations to think longer term. There's actually more thinking going on there. Um, you're quite right. And by the way, I want to tell you, the title of my book was not Who Stole the American Dream when I signed my contract. I signed a contract with Random House in 2009 to write a book called The Dream at Risk because all I knew at that point was the dream was at risk. 
I only got to stole when I saw hundreds of billions of dollars of the of the retirement costs shifted from corporations, you know, to uh, to private individuals. I only I only wrote that after I discovered six trillion dollars of accumulated middle class wealth in homes had moved from middle class homeowners to the banks in the housing boom, not the bust. And I won't go through that right now, but you can read it in the book if you want to. So I was only persuaded by the evidence that there there were there was actually purposeful action that was separating the classes. But now your question is a more important one in many ways. How do we begin to heal that? I think we begin to look at the behavior of people that is good. If you look at Costco and you look at Walmart, you are looking at two very different business models. You think they're both big box retailers and you're going in looking for a pair of shorts or a blouse or a lawnmower, whatever it is. Walmart is built on the shareholder model. Costco is built on the stakeholder model. If you ask what the wage levels are in Walmart, they're a couple of bucks at a minimum an hour below the wage levels at Costco. Costco is out to keep employees. Walmart is quite happy to have a high turnover employees because all new employees start at a lower level of pay and they don't get benefits for a solid year which means the company spends less. There was a critical moment back in 2011 when, and actually I wrote, I did a documentary called Is Walmart Good for America? And it was one of those documentaries that really kind of examined Walmart. Walmart was under a lot of examination back in the mid-2000s, and they decided they had to behave as a better citizen. What they were basically doing was not providing health care for their employees and their managers. And I actually quote one of their managers and knew one of their managers were actually instructed to tell their employees to go to the emergency rooms of hospitals and, and, and use their wives and their their, uh, their relatives' health care because Walmart wasn't going to do it. It was dumping the cost on the public system, on Medicaid and on, and on hospitals. They decided to improve their health care benefits, and then in 2011, they announced that they could no longer afford to do it. Jim Senegal, the CEO of Costco, responded at that time, and he said, we have a moral responsibility to our employees and their families to provide them with benefits. We have a moral responsibility to the communities we live in not to dump the costs on them. Okay? So there you have two examples. You can, you know in your community, you know in your community who some of the better employers are. Their differences. American capitalism isn't monolithic. I've been talking about the prevailing model today. Even if it costs a bit more for you on an individual purchase basis, it helps the society move in the right direction to shop and do business with the people who behave ethically. And by the way, the same thing is true in journalism. There's a lot of really lousy journalism in America today. And you do American journalism a favor by tuning in to good journalism and tuning out bad journalism. So I think one of the ways we move is we reward people who behave well. We recognize them. We give them honorary degrees at universities. We hold them up and give them public citizenship awards. I mean, there are moral things. It's interesting. I heard a speech by David Brooke the other day. It was a really wonderful speech. He was talking about values. And he was talking about... Eulogy values versus resume values. 
He was talking to CEOs. And he was saying, you know, you know, when you get to the point in your life when you're starting to think about what's my legacy and what are they going to say in the eulogies, whether or not you made a profit and how big a profit you made in 1997 isn't going to matter as much as to whether or not people remember you as a good person. Just, loyal, fair, civic-minded, and on and on. So maybe we need to start using moral suasion in our public dialogue. People are affected by that. We, I mean, ethics is one of our problems in America today. We look at sports, we look at banking, we look at journalism, we look at all kinds of things. People are cheating all over the place. And I don't mean we have to run everybody to jail. We can just talk about how important it is to reestablish the integrity of our connections with each other. And maybe that's a good place to stop. Wow. Corey Nathan here back with you. I, I need to go back and listen to that again. Even though Hedrick Smith's book goes back a couple of years, so many of the trends he's describing have only continued and in some instances have become more exacerbated. I was encouraged, however, to hear from a broad range of people in the audience and especially what Hedrick had to say about the youth of today. It only takes a small but engaged number of us to really change things. And it's just the kind of folks who are attending events at the Village Square that can make the difference. So with that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate. That's villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. It's floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to Who Stole the American Dream? So until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Squarecast.